following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. In the course of this study and practice, we now arrive at a critical point. Everything we explained about the signs of meditation thus far establishes a certain foundation, which specifically is the capacity to awaken the consciousness while placing the mind, heart, energies, and body in a state of suspension, in profound passivity, in deep repose. When the obscurations that filter our perception are removed, we learn to activate an objective state that knows how to apprehend the essential nature of reality. Most people, however, do not even get past the body. People are identified with sensations, a discomfort in their posture, an irritation, an itch, a scratch, a pain. Making many movements and never entering introspection itself. If we are constantly attending to the body, we are not meditating. We have to put our body in a comfortable posture so that we can relax it. And more importantly, so that we can forget about it. Let it be, let it go. We also have to harness vital energy, but with attention, so that we can guide it wisely, intelligently, so that it works for us, not the other way around. 
we explain many times that we must not be fascinated with energy. We need it, we cultivate it, we direct it. It's useful when it's directed within its specific orbit. Unfortunately, there is the tendency in many spiritual movements and schools to identify with the chakras, those vital vortices of energy, to be fascinated by energy itself. But just as a normal person would not be proud of having a full tank of fuel in their car, likewise a genuine meditator doesn't identify him or herself with how much energy they have, with sensations of a psychic type that they perceive, with supernatural sense. What matters is how you drive your car. It doesn't matter how much fuel you have in it. Obviously, to a degree, we need it. But how you drive, how you manage your mind, your heart, and your body with conscious awareness That is essential. We also must not identify or invest energy within feeling, with surging negative emotions, with inferior sentiments, with anger, with vanity, with pride. Associative thought must also be suspended. It must be abandoned. And many people get stuck here. Their mind wanders, their thoughts race. They think of what happened earlier in their day. And a chain of subjective memories hypnotize the consciousness. We become absorbed in what happened yesterday and what we should have said and how we felt and what we thought. It's important that we are no longer distracted that we clarify our attention and learn to focus on one thing. To not let it be dispersed or fragmented. As we learn to direct and sustain our attention, we naturally develop continuity. We are in a constant state of self-remembrance. We feel the presence of divinity at all times. We have deepened serenity. And this is where the potential for certainty and insight becomes realized, as we explained in the last lecture. As you concentrate upon one thing, you can develop consciousness. You strengthen understanding. And you experience certainty about it. The natural function of the consciousness is to perceive and understand. If you do not perceive a phenomenon, you cannot comprehend it. It's a basic law of causality. However, just because we perceive something doesn't mean we understand it, let alone perceive it clearly and objectively. For example, you can perceive a rope in the moonlight and initially believe it to be a snake. You can become filled with fear and terror 
Many emotions surge within yourself as you see this object thinking it is a serpent. It's only when you shine a flashlight upon the object that you perceive and understand what is happening. Magically then, your fears vanish. This principle applies not only to the exterior world, but our inner states. Our psychological states, our ways of being. We do not clearly perceive our internal worlds. For most of us, it's a very muddy world, obscured reality within ourselves. Situations tend to happen and we just react. We can know that we're angry, we can feel upset, we can feel proud, and we can think our thoughts. But these are just mechanical reactions to life. They are not conscious. They're not directed with intelligence. We don't really understand or see that our mind is the source of our sufferings. But it's when you shine light through observation of yourself, when you look at yourself, that you gain clarity and peace. Isn't it true that once you understand a problem, what to do, what the solution is, how it was caused, where it came from, how it was sustained, how it made others suffer and other people involved in the situation, Isn't it true that we find peace? There is a cessation of suffering. Pain extinguishes like a candle being snuffed out. The problem is that we haven't trained our consciousness enough in order to really look at the facts. To not merely react to life, but to understand it. To perceive it in a new way. We often experience a psychological state, but we don't question what we perceive. We're not objective. If we're honest, if we examine ourselves, if we look, we can know that we're angry, but are we observing the anger? It's only when we separate from the ego when we observe it with an active consciousness, that we can arrive to a very beautiful and magical dimension known as comprehension. Real peace. Real depth of a spiritual nature. Samal and Vior stated in many books, especially Igneous Rose, that comprehension and imagination must replace reasoning. We've explained before that imagination is the ability to perceive non-physical imagery. It's also applied to our sense of psychological self-observation. It's a different type of perception in which we're looking psychologically into the sources of our thoughts, our feelings, and our impulses. We examine where they come from, how they emerge, what they feed upon, how they sustain, how they pass how they make us suffer. Some traditions have called this clear perception vipassana, insight, perception. The Sufis call it vigilance, 
Murakaba. In Gnosis, we call it imagination. However, as we begin to perceive non-physical imagery while we're meditating and during our dreams, we also have to master the signs of interpretation to discriminate what we see, to have certainty about what we see, and certainty about what we understand, what is happening. This establishes confidence or real faith, not belief. It isn't a matter of thinking something is true or feeling it is true, but knowing it from having seen it. This is the essential fulcrum of Gnostic studies. However, we can't really begin to understand what all the great messengers have talked about in terms of God, reality, the truth, if we don't practice in ourselves these principles, if we don't develop reverence and awe, real respect for these methods because they work. We should learn to apply them as a scientist, not expecting a result and not running away from the results when they do emerge, but learning to see with a clear mind to experiment, to verify, to test. This is why the Sufis, especially all Judadi, in the principles of Sufism stated, whoever does not establish awe of duty and vigilance, Murakaba, or awareness, Muhadara, in his relationship to God, will not arrive at disclosure of the unseen, mukashafa, or contemplation, mushahida, of the divine. We've explained what some of these Arabic terms mean in previous lectures. Here we're going to build upon the steps that lead towards comprehension of the truth, contemplation, to witness, which is the Sufis in the Muslim state, the Shahida, there is no God but God. And Muhammad is his prophet. We bear witness of the truth when we have experience. It is conviction born from perceiving reality and understanding it. The term Raqqaba is not only known as vigilance, but it is the Sufi term for meditation itself. To watch oneself, to examine one's thoughts, one's perceptions. Without this foundation, we can't really experience the divine, and more importantly, understand the message. So we'll talk in this lecture about the stages that lead specifically towards not only experiencing these principles, but verifying and understanding them, more importantly. We enter the internal worlds with cognizance and learn to initiate communication with our inner being by studying three specific steps, three parameters, three principles. We preface this discussion in that these are not rigid plateaus 
where you have to master one stage before you enter the next. These principles relate, they interrelate, they integrate. They support one another and they complement each other. While there is a sequence in turn and in truth, they represent one profound dynamic, which is self-realization, to know oneself within our multidimensional being. We can fluctuate throughout these three stages, even within a single moment in meditation. Samalan Vior states the following in his book, Sexology, The Basis of Endocrinology and Criminology. Imagination, inspiration, and intuition are obligatory steps of the initiation. If you've listened to other lectures on our website, we've talked extensively about the path of initiation. You can also study the lecture stations within this course where we talk about what it means to initiate a new way of being, a path, a method towards the realization of the divine. Whosoever has raised these three steps of direct knowledge has reached supraconsciousness, which is a consciousness that is beyond our ordinary perceptions. It is the way that a God perceives, a master, a prophet. The world of imaginative knowledge is a world of symbolic images. Inspiration grants us the power of interpreting symbols. In the world of intuition, we see the great cosmic theater and we are the spectators. We attend the great drama of life. We study these principles to provide direction in our work to give us focus, to give us orientation. You can see in the background of this image a prayer niche facing towards Mecca. You find these within any mosque. It is known as the Qibla. It is how you direct yourself towards the stone of the Kaaba in the Middle East in order to pray. It is a symbol of your concentration, your focus, and your discipline. Specifically with the stone, the Kaaba, Yesod and Kabbalah, the work with the creative sexual energies, as we've mentioned many times. So in order to really master these three steps of initiation, to understand the process of experience and how to understand what we perceive, we have to be very dedicated, very prayerful, very devoted. In synthesis, imagination is the perception of non-physical imagery. Inspiration is the recognition of divine symbolism or iconography. Intuition is the comprehension. It's the understanding or the interpretation of internal symbols and experiences. So in a moment of meditation, you can be relaxed, entering profoundly into yourself when you suddenly receive in your mind that is quiet, a symbol. It arrives to you with clarity, with a perception that is very crisp, dynamic, powerful. You see it not with physical senses, but with psychological senses, with the capacity to perceive images, imagination, 
we often think of imagination as something fanciful. And ironically, we think of it as something false, when in truth, imagination permeates everything. I know in our Western culture, we like to look down upon people who use their imagination, like artists, so to speak. But in truth, the greatest inventors, architects, creators, builders, inventors, first perceived something in their mind, and then they made it manifest in real, physically. The problem is that for most of us, our imagination is conditioned. We tend to use it in the wrong way. But when it is purified and perfected, it becomes a vehicle through which divinity can speak to us, can communicate to us directly. So you can be meditating and receive an image. Not only that, but it arrives clearly and with a lot of vibrant colors, detail like a vivid lucid dream, you recognize a symbol and therefore you become inspired. You feel joy because you realize that God is speaking to you. But the problem for most of us is that even if we have that experience, we get bewildered. We don't understand the message and then we run to our friends or instructors or dream dictionaries or books to find some kind of answer to a specific message given to us by our inner being. And the problem is that we tend to get even more confused because no one can interpret your dreams for you. Instructors can give suggestions, but really we don't understand the karma of a person. We don't see into other people's minds especially over the internet. We get those inquiries on online and we see it even on the forum. People ask people or instructors to interpret dreams. The reality is that intuition, understanding of those experiences will unfold naturally as we meditate. It's good to know symbols and different teachings from the prophets that relate to different symbols. But the truth is that the magic blossoming of realization unfolds when you put your mind aside, when you stop comparing with the intellect. You let your consciousness speak to your heart. The Sufis do not use these terms, but we ref reference such stages in the following way. Awareness, Mukhadara, is the beginning. Then follows disclosure, Mukashafa. Then contemplation, Mushahida. First, we have to become aware of the divine presence inside. We become aware of images, imagination, perceptions, experiences, which unfold beautifully when we don't desire it when we let our mind rest and we wait and are open, receptive. We acquire disclosure when we recognize with inspiration and joy that divinity has communicated with us through symbols, whether in meditation or in dreams. When you have an impactful experience, you feel great happiness 
it hits you in your heart, even if you don't intellectually understand it. And the way to understand these messages is not with the intellect, it's with our heart, with our conscience. We can understand that divinity has disclosed, has unveiled a specific message for us, and it now is imperative that we learn how to interpret it with intelligence, without prejudice, without egotism, without desire. When we learn to interpret without the ego, we arrive at intuition, contemplation. We put the self away. You cannot know the truth with your mind, with your intellect. Your mind can only compare data from the senses. You need a different type of understanding, intelligence. Reasoning has to be put aside. And this is why people often don't know how to discriminate what they are seeing. And so this lecture will serve to explain that process. Let's examine the definition and guidelines for imaginative knowledge. From Samalan Vior. For the wise, to imagine is to see. Imagination is the translucence of the soul. The question is, is our perception or imagination translucent? Is it clear? Can you take an object and visualize it perfectly? Can you sustain it for a long period of time? Most of us, if we're honest, will find that the mind will distort the image. We can't see clearly. We don't see with color, with intensity. We can't sustain it. This is because our mind is conditioned. Our ego manipulates the practice. So the solution is to be patient because this skill and this sense can only be developed with consistency, with intentionality. We all have the capacity to imagine. We all can perceive. We all have that potential. Some people unfortunately have used the term clairvoyance to denominate a term that is natural to anyone. Primarily because this group of people, I believe it's a group of French initiates, who wanted to confuse those who were not studying their teaching. Clairvoyance merely signifies clear vision. They gave a technical term to a natural function. Therefore, people have come to many absurd conclusions about what clairvoyance or imagination is. Like it's a gift that only few people have. If I tell you to imagine an apple, you can see it. Not with your physical eyes, but with your consciousness. The question is, how developed is that skill? And it's a very quality that can really help us to perceive divinity internally within meditation and within dreams. So there is positive imagination and there is negative imagination. Positive imagination is free of ego. There's no conditioning there. There's no subjectivity or delusion. It's not mixed with impurity, like anger or pride or resentment or fear or lust. Negative imagination is the type of fantasies that we have 
and engage with all day, typically. We think of conversations and things we wanted to say to a person at a given moment. Or we indulge in images in our mind relating to lust, with pride, with anger, etc. This wastes a lot of energy. And it means that our imagination is not translucent. It's not clear. We purify it gradually with patience. Samuel Enviar continues, Whosoever awakens consciousness has reached imaginative knowledge. This one moves in the world of symbolic images. The symbols that the student saw while he was dreaming, he now sees without dreaming, as before he was seeing them with a sleeping consciousness. Now he moves himself among them with an awakened consciousness, even when his physical body is profoundly asleep. When the student reaches imaginative knowledge, he sees the symbols, but he does not understand them. He comprehends that all of nature is a living scripture that he does not know. The student needs to elevate himself into inspired knowledge in order to interpret the sacred symbols of great nature. We have a lot of exercises in our tradition to develop imagination. There are visualization practices to strengthen their capacity to perceive non-physical imagery with color, with vibrancy, with intensity, with clarity, with depth, and with sustainability. Of course, our imagination in the beginning is going to be mixed. But with practice, we transform conditioned perception into unconditioned perception, negative imagination into positive imagination. It's important also to understand that there are two essential dynamics related with imagination. Visualization practice requires that we project an image, but it also requires that we learn how to receive images as well. With visualization, we take an object, we initiate it, we perceive it, we sustain it. We do it with gentleness. Imagination is a beautiful flower, an immaculate rose with very delicate petals. It's not achieved through force, with exertion, with strain. It arises from the mud of your psychology with time and patience and great care, with tenderness, with affection, with love. And imagination comes to us as we recollect. We don't force it. We don't coerce the mind. Imagination is translucent and natural like a cool moon reflected within a pond, within the pristine and limpid waters of a lake. So if you lose the lucidity of the image that you're trying to visualize, it's good to open your eyes again, look at your object again. Then close your eyes and continue. Train yourself, be consistent. With practice, you'll begin to sustain images with great accuracy and consistency. And this is the skill that is going to open up the internal world when you combine meditation with relaxation. Ever have a dream? Ever enter the dream world consciously? 
perceiving images and sounds and places and people and things. This is the doorway to real knowledge. So when you work with your imagination and you develop relaxation, you enter your psychology with concentration, you access knowledge of the superior dimensions, those realities that all the great prophets have called heavens. So what are some practices we can do to develop this? We got to remember that as we're practicing, the mind is going to attempt to distract us. It's going to distort what we perceive, and when this happens, it's good to look at your object again and recall the exercise without force. You can take a candle and observe it, light it, look at its qualities and color and details, and then close your eyes gently and visualize the object. If you find that your mind is distracted, it can be good to engage with preliminary concentration exercises, like focusing on the breath or a mantra. Or you can open up your eyes again and observe the candle, bring your attention back gently without force, remind yourself not with recrimination, but with delicacy and confidence. Bring yourself back to the practice. And eventually you'll start to sustain your imagination over prolonged periods of time. Start short, begin with five to 10 minute practices, do them frequently, but daily. And then you will find you get better at it. If you want to get even more profound into this type of exercise, you can visualize a plant. So if you want this to work, it could be good to go on to Google Images to actually own a specific plant and find pictures that relate to its appearance, but also to its internal physiology. This is so that you can understand its constituent parts, what it's made up of, because this is very important when you practice a technique given by Samal and Vior in the book Sexology. Our visualization has to be very scientific. We have to know what makes up the plant. We have to be exact if we want it to work. So you can imagine the form, the figure, the structure, the perfume, the color of the plant. can be any kind. If you can get an aloe or a maguey or other plants we use for magical rituals, elemental magic like an igneous rose by Samal and Vior, the better. The important thing is that we have the plant of our choice and that we have precision with our visualization. You imagine the protoplasm, the membrane, the nucleus. While maintaining drowsiness, we also reflect upon the four essential elements of the plant, its cell protoplasm, which is a viscous, elastic, and transparent substance, like an egg white. The four elements that relate to the protoplasm are carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, and nitrogen. Perceive the nucleus. It's a miniature solar system where life palpitates with abundance. It circulates, it flows, like the planets around a sun. Examine the nucleus in your mind's eye. Perceive the nuclear juice and the nucleolus, which is covered by a nuclear membrane. The nucleolus is constituted by corpuscules that shine with light. 
We can also imagine how mineral substances make organic combinations within the plant's cellular protoplasm. You can perceive the grains of starch within the luminous chlorophyll, which shines like a green light. Salmonvier explains that we can enter ecstasy when contemplating plant cell nutrition, its relationship and its reproduction. So this is a very skilled exercise, takes a lot of focus, but if you invest a lot of time and energy and work into this, it is very fruitful, very positive. And so when you're imagining the reproduction of the plant and you know its parts, you can observe and imagine the chalice of the flower, which are its sexual organs. And the pollen is the masculine reproductive element. The pistil or gynoceum is the feminine sexual organ of the plant with its ovary sac, which is filled with ova, the stylus, and stigma, specifically. We can visualize the process of fecundation, which is really important. Where you see the feminine germs and the masculine gametes when they meet. After exiting the anther, the pollen, which is the masculine gamete, reaches the ovary of the plant whereby the feminine gamete waits with longing, with sexual anticipation, with ecstasy. It's important to remember that in this stage of the visualization, because we're focusing on the details of the plant, we're now going inside of the evolving and devolving processes of the plant itself. We have to perceive the sprout, the bud, which grows slowly, giving birth to leaves, to flowers, and branches. However, we have to recall that everything that lives must die. It must decay. It must devolve. This is the sister of evolution. Everything has birth, life, and genesis, gestation, formation, existence, but then it decays, devolves, degenerates, dies. You can't have one without the other. And as you're imagining the withering decomposition and death of the plant, you're perceiving its leaves and its stalk retracting and dying. Now, what is the purpose of this exercise? We are becoming conscious of these spiritual laws and how they operate with all, all existing things. This visualization can apply to us as well. And if you go really deep, allowing the mind to settle, to calm, and you're visualizing all this with clarity, you can enter into the superior worlds as your body falls asleep. You enter the internal planes and receive higher knowledge about these processes. Because to imagine is to see doesn't mean to fantasize, to project our desires or what we think or want. It means to receive new information. So in this practice, you're projecting an image and you're sustaining it with accuracy. You're maintaining its vibrancy, its depth, its life. You hold it and you wait. The next step is that if you're patient, 
if you're serene, if you're concentrated, and if you're not expecting anything, the truth emerges. You're going to receive new information. It's going to relate to the object of your practice. And this can occur in the form of a living drama, a scene, an event, a situation, whereby you're both the witness and the participant. If you're meditating on a plant, specifically, you can eventually leave your body and speak face-to-face with the elemental of the plant. These innocent beings appear with beautiful colored tunics or togas. They're innocent children, very simple and pure. Now, the Sufis referred to this principle of imagination in different ways. They speak about awareness, which can be a very broad and general term. But specifically, we have to become aware of this whole process, of all of these principles, of all the details of our visualization. And I'll read for you a quote from Principles of Sufism by Al-Kushari, which explain and corroborate what Samalanvir wrote. Awareness, from the same Arabic root word, hudur, presence, is presence of heart, which may be produced by the coming together of innumerable small proofs of what is real. It is still behind the veil, even if the heart is present with the overwhelming power of the practice of remembering God. So what are these innumerable small proofs of what is real? There are many people who write to us about their experiences. They're meditating, they achieve a state of quietude, of introspection, the mind is at rest, the body is calm, the energies are circulated through pranayama, and then suddenly lights emerge, colors, sounds, experiences, visions. This is imaginative knowledge. It is the capacity of the soul to perceive the higher dimensions, which are inside. So many people have different experiences when they work in Gnosis. And this constitutes definite evidence or objective testimony of the truth of divine states. However, such perceptions are still behind the veil, so to speak. Because we can perceive all these things, but we don't understand what we perceive. We feel a powerful divine presence within our consciousness, even if we don't grasp the full depth of the vision. This is why we study mindfulness. The term murakaba is Sufi meditation, to watch oneself, one's thoughts, one's desires, one's preconditions or prejudices, assumptions, cravings, aversions, etc. Our capacity to imagine is strengthened when we self-observe. You need both. If you want your imagination practices to go well, you should be observing yourself all day so that the very sense of perception is strengthened and complemented by your imagination exercises. It's the same capacity to perceive. Although they do have their distinct qualities, but when you're working with self-observation, you're working with positive imagination. You're learning to perceive your own inner worlds, your defects, your faults. Learning to perceive objectively, learning to act objectively. To be in a state of equanimity.
To be successful in these studies, we have to be vigilant. We can't sleep as a consciousness. It's important to remember divinity in our actions and perceive and understand and observe our psychological processes at all times. The word vigil means to not sleep, to not lose attention. A vigil often encompasses a ritual in which you are praying over the dead in which you don't sleep or other practices in many indigenous cultures where they pray to the divine gods, the masters, the Buddhas, the prophets, and renounce physical sleep even if but for a day. Some people refer to this process as mindfulness. Which is the continuity of attention? We're being aware at all times throughout our day and even at night when we're asleep physically. We learn to be conscious in the internal worlds. We achieve murakaba, meditation, by establishing ourselves within serenity. I'll read for you some quotes from Abdullah Ansari of Harat, from the stations of the Sufi path. He provides some guidelines for developing this introspective quality of perception. From the field of serenity, the field of mindfulness is born. God the Most High says, They celebrate His praises night and day, nor do they even flag or intermit, from Quran, the Quran, Surah 21, verse 20. So this emphasizes that one can't lose their attention if even but a moment. It's a difficult process and training ground, but it's essential. Mindfulness involves striving and is of three kinds. Being mindful of service, being mindful of the spiritual moment, and being mindful of the inner consciousness. We must engage in selfless activities. We have to learn to serve our communities, our families, our loved ones, while in a state of vigilance. This is the prerequisite. However, this can only occur when we're no longer anticipating the future, nor ruminating about the past. We have to be present here and now, as we explain in the lecture called The Present Moment in this course. Inner consciousness reflects our deepest connection our solidarity, and expression of being. It means that we follow our hunches, our inquietudes, our longings, our intuition, where we know something without having to think about it. We know what to do in a given moment without having to rationalize. The quote continues. Being mindful of service is achieved through three things. Revering God's command, knowing the prophetic tradition, and recognizing pretension. How do we revere God's command? We not only study the Piscean and Aquarian teachings, but we reflect upon how they are realized and related to our life. This is when the teachings become really fruitful and not an intellectual exercise. We learn to follow the commands of our being by following our heart. We learn to recognize which psychological states are harmful or beneficial. We do it through observation of the facts, through experience, through trials, through errors, through failures. The prophetic tradition, obviously in Islam, relates to the the Prophet Muhammad. But it also refers to the ethical caliber 
the lives of any genuine master. For us, as Gnostics of this tradition, we reflect upon the process of Samal and Vior, who describes the path of initiation through his example in books like The Three Mountains, which is a spiritual autobiography. We have to also recognize pretension. To identify when we do things with pride or with humility. You can only examine yourself. You have to know this from experience to distinguish the difference. And being mindful of the spiritual and metaphysical moment is achieved through three things. Elimination of passion, purification of thought, and being overcome by divine love. So you master your abilities in the moment by comprehending and eliminating passions, the egos, nafs al-amara in Arabic. Purify your mind. We do it by discovering and restraining desire, by judging it through retrospection meditation, and praying for annihilation when we comprehend it fundamentally. We have to remember the presence of God. We do this when we are tempted, and when we do not allow ourselves to be guided by desire. We follow our intuition, which knows right from wrong. Lastly, and being mindful of the inner consciousness is achieved through three things. Losing attachment to the world, becoming free from the self, and returning to God through intimacy. We need to identify how we are attached to impressions, why we crave or possess aversions to certain situations. We have patterns that we repeat. We have to examine this. We have to follow the thread of inner consciousness, like Ariadne's thread in the labyrinth that Theseus follows in order to escape after slaying the Minotaur. Follow the thread and continuity of your consciousness to get out of the mind. We do that by examining our impressions, psychologically and externally. We free ourselves from the ego when we realize that we are not ego. This is a profound state of joy, real happiness. And intimacy is a sexual and alchemical term, which unfortunately many Sufis ignore, often attributing it to realizing divine states exclusively. However, the greatest intimacy with our Divine Mother is achieved in the perfect matrimony. Study the lecture on our website called Divine Love. It's in the Sufi path of self-knowledge. So divinity speaks in symbols, which is always particular to the time, the needs, the interests, the language, the context, and the idiosyncrasies of a given culture. We can see in this graphic a representation of diverse religious forms, which contain esoteric principles. We should become familiar with them. These 13 symbols, starting at 12 o'clock, moving clockwise, are the Baha'i Faith, Buddhism, Christianity, Confucianism, Hinduism, Islam, Jainism, Judaism, Native Spirituality, Sikhism, Taoism, Unitarian Universalism, and Zoroastrianism. So different messengers have appeared to provide this wisdom. But since aspirants require different nourishment, possessing unique particularities, we all have different aspirations and tastes, divinity often conveys such truths in a way that is going to be palatable. It's going to be accessible to a given moment 
in history. Symbols, however, convey greater meaning than words, which is why internal experiences have always been coded within divine abstractions, within allegories, within parables, within situations, within dramas. People often ask why God speaks in symbols. In truth, you simply cannot convey that much depth through plain English. As much as we may like Shakespeare, really, the most deep truths are abstract and symbolic. A word can convey some variety of meaning, whether it's connotative or denotative, implicit or explicit, the hidden or the literal meaning. However, a symbol can operate on multiple conceptual and experiential dimensions all at once. For example, you can receive a cross in a dream, and overall it can refer to a state of profound moral suffering, but also the four elements of the ordeals. It can relate to sexual temptations, the crossing of male and female forces, the death of the ego. It can also signify the return to divinity. So the language of God is intuition. It's a type of grammar. It's the building blocks of meaning, of an intuitive and spiritual type. It's difficult to learn, but if you're patient, you will learn it. And it will guide you in your daily life. This grammar is synthesized through religious symbolism, especially the sacred arcana of the eternal tarot. These are the archetypes of the spiritual path itself. Each arcanum or law represents a truth that can apply to many different specific events or problems. These are universal ideas which become particularized to a event. So for example, you can meditate and inquire into a certain problem, visualizing it within your imagination. And as you awaken consciousness within the internal worlds, you perceive a drama which can unfold in relation to a number. This signifies that numbers and their symbolism are intuitive. They're dynamic. They represent principles and forces. They symbolize specific conflicts and struggles, as well as the anecdotes and antidotes for change, for remedy. To whatever problem we're facing. And when you recognize that these symbols are a direct communication from your innermost being, you become inflamed. You become enraptured. You become inspired. You're perceiving something new in your consciousness. It's like a shock. It gives you joy. Literally, the term inspiration from the Latin inspirare signifies immediate influence of God or a God to breathe upon. Inspiration is when we recognize through alert novel perception that God has answered us. However, while we recognize that divinity has given us an answer in relation to a symbol or a problem, we have to learn to interpret the message. However, the problem is the ego People who do not question their perceptions 
and how they interpret internal experiences have gone even so far as to commit crimes, literally. For example, we can internally see that our spouse is committing adultery with someone else. We can wake up from the dream and then mistakenly condemn our partner, not realizing how that inner vision was either a projection of our own desires or, if it was objective, a scene from a past life which our spouse is incapable of repeating again. So, internal perceptions have to be analyzed coldly, like you're dissecting a cadaver. You have to do it without superstition, without attachment, without assumption. Not allowing any belief, any condition of mind to twist what you see. This is why we study religious symbolism. We study the path so that we don't get confused. We can verify whether or not our experiences are objective when we measure them up to the works of the prophets, not by modern people, but by real initiates who we have verified. If our inner experiences don't coincide with physical facts, with evidence, with verification from scripture, from the teachings, from the instructions, then we can sincerely disregard what we perceived. It'll be a projection of the ego. We can be very confident in that. Samuel Vera gives a quote regarding this. Inspired knowledge grants us the power of interpreting the symbols of great nature. When the eye interferes by translating and interpreting symbols, then it alters the meaning of this secret scripture and the clairvoyant the imaginative one, falls into a crime that conduct him to jail. Interpretation must be tremendously analytical, highly scientific, and essentially mystical. There is a need to learn how to see and how to interpret in the absence of the I, of the myself. Inspirational knowledge is uplifting. It's invigorating. It's really a beautiful thing. Because we're unveiling the mysteries of our being. We're receiving true wisdom and we're receiving guidance ethically about our problems. What to do, how to behave. This is why the Sufis explained. After this comes disclosure, unveiling, mukashafa, which is presence, which has the quality of proof itself. In the condition, the heart has no need of pondering indications or searching for the road, nor seeking protection from occasions of uncertainty, and it is not screened from the nature of the unseen. So these are different terms than the Sufis, or better said, what Samal and Vyar gave. Unveiling is inspiration. It's when we unveil the mysteries and receive direct proofs of divine reality. We don't question or ponder what to do. Because we don't need to search anymore for the road, the path, the way to the answer to an issue. The answer has appeared, so we're no longer uncertain about what divinity wants from us or is guiding us to do. We're no longer screened from the unseen, the being. So we feel great inspiration. We feel shock. We can feel awe. Because we've successfully communicated with God and that God is speaking to us. 
In synthesis, if you want to develop inspirational knowledge, you can meditate on classical music, especially Beethoven, Wagner, Mozart, Puccini, Chopin, Liszt, the great masters. Their music teach these archetypes and enliven the heart. We see here an image of a woman wearing a burqa, a face covering, which is an esoteric symbol for how the Divine Mother is hidden from the eyes of the profane, but is visible to those who maintain chastity. We achieve unveiling through working with transmutation, with breath work, with pranayama. We do so through mantras and sexual alchemy. Abdurra Ansari of Harat continues. From the field of breath, the field of unveiling is generated. God the Most High says, The heart in no way falsified that which he saw. Surah 53 verse 11. We've mentioned many times in this course that by harnessing the creative potential, we gain clarity in our perceptions to the point that we acquire real faith, which is confidence born from experience, not belief. It doesn't matter if you think or do not think divinity is real. What matters is the experience to verify, to know. Unveiling is when the heart sees God. And the signs of such disclosure are three. The heart is drowned in the remembrance of God. The innermost consciousness overflows with his gaze. And the inner heart sees the reality. So to be drowned in remembrance is to be totally absorbed within that beautiful inspiration in the heart. Because we've received the message, a symbol. And therefore we are seeing God with the heart. Not with the mind, but with the senses of the soul. And to gaze upon divinity is symbolic. God is formless, but divinity takes spiritual and religious forms so that we can apprehend his archetypical and intuitive nature. To see reality is only possible with an awakened and discerning heart. So many people approach spirituality with the intellect and therefore they don't understand mysticism because it is not an intellectual process of comparing data the mind can label phenomena, but it is no substitute for experience. The first kind of unveiling involves three things. Truthful disclosure, fear of people, and inspiration and invocation. So these are relating to, again, the three stages or, or degrees of Sufism. Sharia, Tariqah, and Hakikah, or Marifa. Here we find the first level of unveiling, which is Sharia, which is listening to the doctrine truthful discourse to be inspired and feel that this teaching is true based off our intuition in the heart and what we hear and receive with gladness it means to validate and recognize these teachings with a receptive mind and a heart that knows how to pay attention we also feel inspiration or experience unveiling when we recognize how our actions bear consequences especially when we relate with people. If we act with ego, we affect others, and therefore everyone is interdependent. No one is separate or isolated. And in this way, we feel great awe. We can feel fear, reverence, respect, because we recognize that God is within all people and within ourselves, and therefore we don't act stupidly, intentionally. We should also feel inspiration when we pray or invoke divinity, as we know in our practices and rituals. 
The second kind of unveiling involves three things, stability of states, firmness and sincerity, and recognizing a higher bliss. This relates to Tarika, the path of meditation. And it relates to the stability of states and the consistency and temperance of one's practice. When we're consistent, we receive continual and consistent inspiration. We apply the knowledge daily and practically. We get results, even if but long term. We also remain firm in our sincerity. And we repeatedly assess ourselves through inner accounting, muhasabah in Arabic, self-observation. Recognition of higher bliss has to do with samadhis, ecstasies, absorptions, whereby the soul penetrates the superior worlds and unites with divinity after abandoning the ego. Lastly, relating to the higher paths of Sufism, Hakika, the truth, and, and Marifa, knowledge. And the third kind of unveiling also involves three things, attaining stability and peacefulness, attaining dignity like that of the angels, and attaining steadfastness like that of holy and spiritual people. Stability is temperance, to be firm and resolute. And these are developed with serenity gradually as we renounce egotism. We can have dignity like the angels, which is nothing like pride. It is humble. It is a recognition of one's real worth, which does not assert itself upon other people, which learns to respect the will of other people and offer guidance and solutions to problems without force, without manipulation. We do this by learning to work with the forces of persuasion, not coercion. And while we can maintain our dignity, we learn to establish boundaries with people. Humility does not mean that we necessarily become a doormat, but learn to act appropriately with dignity for the benefit of others, even if it contradicts others' ego. But of course, to distinguish this quality requires a lot of discrimination and analysis of oneself. To not assume we are anything, but to be empty like a clear sky. Steadfastness, like holy and spiritual people, applies to those who practice meditation and transmutation, even for hours. It was said by Samuel Vior that a serious meditator practices five to six hours a day. But of course, this is the level of a master and has to be built towards. Very difficult, but as by his example, it can be done. We have to start with where we're at. With patience, we shall possess our soul. So after receiving a divine symbol, we have to comprehend and intuit its meaning. As we explained earlier, mathematics is divine. It's symbolic. It's archetypical. It's allegorical. It's parabolic. It's symbolic. Each number represents a principle. Each of the divine arcana, the laws of the cosmos, represent higher truths. We find the following verses from Samuel and Vior. The world of intuition is the world of mathematics. The student that wants to elevate himself to the world of intuition must be a mathematician or at least have, must have notions of arithmetic. In the world of intuition, we find only omniscience, 
The world of intuition is the world of the being. It is the world of the intimate. In this world, the I, the myself, the ego cannot enter. The world of intuition is the universal spirit of life. So no self can be present. If you really wish to experience the highest levels and dimensionalities of the tree of life, we can't have any ego present. The self must be absent. There must not be any condition there. Doesn't mean that the whole ego has to be dead right away, but we have to learn to train ourselves to separate from that so that we can go within. If you wish to under, understand and comprehend intuitive knowledge, you can meditate on mathematical formulas. Now, it's easy to rationalize how 2 plus 2 is 4. However, to understand the archetypes behind this from experience requires a lot of depth. Now, if you look at the Hebrew language, you find that the four-letter name of God, yod Hey vav Hey, represents man-woman phallus uterus within alchemical terms. It is the synthesis and power of the Divine Father and the Divine Mother manifested within a couple. This synthesis expresses the creative power of God. You can analyze this intellectually, but to understand how a God creates from experience, is very distinct. Intuition is known by the Sufis as contemplation. It's been called witnessing. Mushahida. At this stage, we perceive a symbol and we understand what it means. As stated by Al-Kushari. Then comes contemplation, which is the presence of the real, without any remaining doubt. Suddenly the sky of one's hidden inner being becomes clear of the clouds, of the veil, and the sun of vision rises in the sign of honor. The truth of contemplation is as Junaid said, finding the real comes with losing yourself. With comprehension, contemplation, witnessing, we don't have any doubts about what we perceive. There are many levels of comprehension. We can have it in the physical world. We can even have it in the internal worlds. Levels of intuitive knowledge. As dynamic and broad and deep and pervasive as the tree of life, which is why we study that Kabbalistic glyph many times. However, to really have this type of understanding, the ego, the self, has to be absent, if even but for a few moments. So some people have the mistaken notion that intuition exclusively applies to having a samadhi in which you enter the superior worlds and enter a vacation. You leave the physical world behind and have some powerful, tremendously mystical experience. The truth is that intuition is that, but it also it is as simple as comprehending an ego where you perceive that shock in your consciousness, that presence of divinity that showed you right from wrong. It can last a second and then it's gone. But you felt it. You experienced it. It was deep. And in this way, we have no doubts about what we perceive. And as you see in this image, the sun represents Christ. The logos, the truth. Which arrives when we lose our ego. Even if but temporarily. As Samalan Vior explained, the eye cannot enter the intuitive worlds. Only the consciousness. 
Therefore, we have to abandon our mind to experience the truth, reality. Imagination, inspiration, and intuition are represented in one of the most famous verses from the Quran. I'll read it for you in brief. Allah is the light of the heavens and of the earth. The parable of His light is like a niche wherein is a lamp. The lamp is in a glass, the glass as it were a glittering star, lit from a blessed olive tree, neither eastern nor western, whose oil almost lights up, though fire should not touch it. Light upon light. Allah guides to His light whomever He wishes. Allah draws parables for mankind, and Allah has knowledge of all things. Surah 24, verse 35. The Quran is a book of Kabbalah and alchemy, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A map of the multidimensionality of our being, from the most divine, rarefied states to the most dense and crude, our physical body or the earth. Divinity is a light, is a form of cognizance which does not have any form, but can take form. It's clear perception, like within a lamp. If you've studied the Torah, you know of the ninth arcanum, the hermit, who bears a lamp of wisdom from which real knowledge is born. Yet this is not knowledge from any book, but from experience, your own life lessons. Samalan Vyar often describes our innermost spirit, as a light within a glass of alabaster, which is Buddhi, the divine soul or consciousness. The oil that lights the lamp is the science of Hermes. It is the sexual energy that has to be hermetically sealed and transmuted, as we explained in the lecture on breath. An olive tree represents the sexual force, since our gonads are two olives, whether two testicles or two ovaries, from which the oil, the Hebrew shemen, which is semen, provides the light of our temple and our spiritual life. That olive tree is neither from the east or the west in terms of physical direction. It's within us. But why is that tree not from the east or the west? Because people are very fanatic in their religion and think that the truth is only to be found in a certain scripture, in a certain religion, in some certain direction on the earth. But the truth is that you carry knowledge within your sexual glands. It has to be untouched by the fires of lust when we practice chastity. Without this basis, there's no light or understanding. Without the fuel for spiritual experience, we cannot awaken consciousness, period. Which is why it states, Allah guides to his light whomever he wishes. That light is imagination. It's the capacity to perceive with spiritual sight, insight. Certainty. Allah draws parables from mankind, and Allah has knowledge of all things. These parables are symbols, allegories, archetypes, which inspire us to work. And to have knowledge of all things is to possess intuition, understanding of its meaning. We have a couple of verses from Stations of the Sufi Path in a company with an image of Prophet Muhammad ascending the seven heavens upon Al-Burak, the lightning, the creative power of the Divine Mother. 
It is that energy that can give us the capacity to perceive the higher worlds. You cannot perceive heaven without it. Divine states. Which is why this initiate states, God the Most High says, Verily in this is a message for any that has a heart and understanding or who gives ears and earnestly witnesses the truth. From Surah 50 verse 37. Unfortunately in these times, many people do not even have a heart. They can't understand mysticism because they approach these studies solely with the intellect. It's good to acquire knowledge of the books and scriptures and teachings. But that is merely knowledge in the mind. Whether we understand what we have read is another thing. We understand it from experience. To witness the truth, we have to learn to listen with a receptive mind and an active heart, an active consciousness. This verse continues. Contemplation occurs when the veils between the obedient servant and God are removed. What are the veils that obscure our perceptions of the divine? It is desire, anger, pride, lust, vanity, greed, avarice, jealousy, skepticism, morbidity, attachment, obsession, pessimism, morbidity, selfishness, doubt. If we're desiring an experience, we will not have it. If we calm and quiet the mind and await the answer patiently with concentration and imagination, then the experience arrives magically. There are three ways to realize contemplation. The first is to advance from the level of knowledge to the level of wisdom. The second is to advance from the level of patience to the level of purity. And the third is to advance from the level of gnosis to the level of divine reality. So these three ways are mapped out by, again, Sharia, Tariqa, and Hakika, Marifa, which we're going to elaborate here. A person will advance from the level of knowledge to the level of wisdom through three things. By putting one's knowledge into practice, by revering the divine commandments, and adhering to the prophetic tradition. This is the beginning of spiritual knowledge. We learned how to apply what we learn. Knowledge and being must be balanced. If your knowledge is greater than your being, then you become constipated. There's a lot of data in your mind, but it can be confusing and disorienting. And it ferments when we don't actually perceive what we read. And a lot of people become very morbid that way. It's unfortunate. We recommend study a little bit, practice a lot. And that way you gain experience of what is being written here and achieve equilibrium and balance. Revering divine commandments doesn't mean to obey a tradition literally because someone told us to, but because we recognize the positive results of our practice. We feel happiness when we enact compassion and ethics and chastity especially. And adhering to the prophetic tradition refers to living one's life like the masters, like the prophets. Likewise, a person will rise from the level of patience to that of purity through three things. Abandoning disputation, abandoning self-will and personal deliberations, and understanding the necessity of contentment 
This is the spiritual station of the contented. So on the path of meditation, when we are content with our lot, we rise from the level of patience to that of purity. It's important to learn to avoid arguments with people. People who want to dispute with us or argue and debate enter conflict verbally to violate the minds of others mentally, verbally, and likewise ourselves. It wastes a lot of energy, as we mentioned earlier in this course. It's good to save energy, to be patient, to offer these teachings from a state of humility and understanding, not from fanaticism or dogma, like we want to coerce someone to follow our faith. Persuasion is better, not coercion. Self-will has to be abandoned also. To no longer deliberate with the intellect for solutions to problems, because the mind is a machine. Instead, we should use intuition. And it's also necessary to be content with our lot, to overcome the craving desire for more. Like, I will only be spiritual if I get a partner. Or if I've studied this book or received blessings from this master or had this spiritual experience. We have to start with where we're at. Be patient. You acquire purity by enduring your karma and experiencing suffering patiently with humility, with love. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill laid low, says Isaiah. Lastly, in relation to the path of Hakika, the truth, and Marifa, Gnosis. Likewise, a person will ascend from the level of Gnosis to the level of divine reality through three things. Behaving with awe and respect whilst in solitude and retreat. Cultivating humility and service. And acting with self-sacrificing generosity to his companions. So it's important if we really want to develop intuitive knowledge, we practice these three principles. Wisdom, purity, and reality. We should respect and revere divinity and the practices when we meditate. We do so from experience. To blindly accept is not to comprehend. It's not to intuit. It's not to experience. We should do so when we're alone, but also on retreats, especially if you come out to our Gnostic retreats that we have and which Glorian Publishing hosts. Hopefully with COVID, uh, things will settle down so that we can again have retreats in person and Practice in company of spiritual people. Respect and reverence cultivate an atmosphere of happiness, of elevation, of inspiration, of intuition. Humility is really important when we sacrifice for others because we have to learn how to help others without pride. Not thinking we are better than others. That we are sacrificing for people because we are spiritual and they are not. Condescension and pity doesn't help anybody. Instead, even being humiliated and shamed by others, but also helping them regardless, is a noble quality. And lastly, we show true generosity. What we give to others without self-interest. It can be our time and services or skills. So for some people it's money, for other people it's teaching. We all have our own unique talents and dispositions that can help. 
So these skills can guide you in developing intuitive knowledge, intuition, in accordance with the three stages of the Sufi path. We always conclude these lectures with practices. Each day, develop your self-observation or inner accounting, muhasaba, from moment to moment. As part of your self-observation, become aware of your use of imagination. Are you using it mechanically? Are you fantasizing about things that aren't there, that are not real, that are subjective and relating to your ego? Or are you in a receptive, alert, and cognitive state, perceiving your surroundings and your internal world with clarity? Every day, practice meditative retrospection. Recall what you perceived externally and internally from the entire day. Also, more importantly, question the validity of what you perceive. At this point in time, I'd like to open up the floor to questions. We have a question. How does one work on the fear of what we are unable to grasp as our being begins to move and interact with us while unconscious sleeping, yet conscious? So from my understanding of the question is the fear of the unknown. As we're experiencing new things, we have perceptions such as in sleep. Some people have become terrified of astral projections, specifically. The sensations of leaving the body or even having visions internally that are very powerful, profound, and shocking. In relation to that, if I understand your question correctly, fear vanishes as we first become familiar with the phenomenon, but also as we learn to understand what in us is scared. Fear is an ego. It's a condition. It's a self, which traps our attention within a very limited scope. So you have to observe that fear when it arises in you and if it takes over and you lose an experience as a result, because those types of emotions pull us away from a samadhi, we have to meditate to relax, to observe, to introspect and visualize that event as it happened, not in accordance with our desires, but based on facts. What do we perceive that happened in relation to the event? Examine the quality of the dream, the vision. Examine your reactions. Be patient. Concentrate and imagine it. Sustain the visualization. Pray to your inner divinity, your divine mother, to give you understanding. And then wait. When your mind is still and you're not even expecting it, the intuition or the understanding will emerge about what that fear is doing to you. What it is, where it came from, how it's manifested how it's been fed how it's kept you in darkness and therefore when you have deep comprehension of that ego you can pray to your divine mother to eliminate and she will in accordance with the magnitude of the fault the depth of the karma involved but also how much energy you have because some egos are really gigantic monstrous 
and are not capable of being eliminated on one's own. So sometimes in reality, for those really deep-seated egos like fear, which obviously have very deep roots, we will need special help for the deepest egos. You can eliminate what you perceive at your level as a single practitioner, but married couples can have more force by which to go into the really unconscious, subconscious, and infraconscious elements of the mind so that you can really clean your abyss inside. But of course, beginners can start with where they're at and eliminate a lot of ego on their own. So there's no excuse if one is not married. We have a question. How does one tell the difference between the mind or with the mind and heart? Now, if you study Kabbalah, the tree of life, there are four spheres from the bottom to the top, or four spheres especially that should concern us when we study meditation and practice it. You have Malkut, the physical body. You have Yesod, the vital energies. You have Hod, the emotions. And you have Netzach, which is the mind. These are the lower qualities of our psychology, which are impure, conditioned by ego and self. Hod and Netzach, the emotional and mental worlds, exist within the fifth dimension. So some people have a difficult time distinguishing between the two. Sometimes even having dreams, one can have a difficult time discerning if they're in the emotional world, hod, or the mental world, natsak. It all stems from a lack of discrimination physically. We study what is known as the three brains, which are machines that operate within our internal physiology, but also our psychology. We have a physical brain in our head, in our cranium, and esoterically, a brain is merely a machine that processes energies and matter and forces. So we know the intellectual brain, obviously. But the emotions of the heart is a brain in itself, how we process feeling. If you have a hard time distinguishing between the mind and the heart, you can practice certain exercises relating to the heart itself, like the mantra O, where you focus on a vibration in the heart center to fill it with divine energy and force so that it becomes inflamed, awakened, and inspired. We also have a third brain, which is the motor instinctive sexual brain. It's a combination of movement, instincts, and sexuality relating to our spine and its nervous systems. We have to take care of our human machine because our body is a temple that can manifest divine aid and force. You learn how these brains function in you by learning to observe yourself. I recommend you study a lecture called Self-Observation and the Three Brains, separate lecture, within the course Beginning Self-Transformation on Chicago Gnosis. You can also study the earlier lectures in this course. It will help to clarify that for you. Any other questions? We have uh, two questions in the chat box. First is death of the ego. An appropriate perspective considering the ego consists of such a significant representation of this reality and conquering may be more responsible. And second, are there replays available or of these uh, talks? So I'll repeat the first question. 
So death of the ego is the best perspective because our consciousness needs to eliminate our defects, our egos, our faults. So if I understand your question, we understand reality. It becomes significant for us when we die to the self. This means to conquer oneself. We really conquer our inner universe, become kings and queens of our spiritual and psychological nature. When we eliminate impurities like anger, pride, vanity, fear, laziness, lust, gluttony, pessimism, morbidity, shame, etc. If the ego does not die, the soul is not born because those egos trap and condition ourselves. If you want to have a clarified imagination, really deep and penetrative, objective, you have to remove the ego. The soul and the being are inspiration. They are states of happiness and joy, which emerge when the ego expires. So inspiration occurs when you, as we mentioned in other lectures too, about working with the breath to inspire and inhale the vital force, the prana, the life energies of our body, in order to awaken the consciousness. But we also have to expire the ego, or the ego must die. If we don't eliminate the ego, especially those that really prevent us from practicing, we become very degenerated, or better said, expired, so to speak. We lack inspiration, enthusiasm, and happiness. So yes, we become responsible individuals as we eliminate anger because we know how to relate to others with greater inspiration and joy, with greater understanding and intuition of people. So there's a question. What is crying a sign of within the human being? Uh, I'd have to ask you to clarify the question. Is that in relation to a dream, a vision that you had? And if so, you'd have to understand and relate the context for what happened because I'll just speak in general about dream interpretation as we're studying this topic of imagination, inspiration, intuition, in accordance with the Sufis. In order to understand an experience like a dream, we have to relate it to a lot of different principles. I mean, intuition and inspiration and imagination are the preliminaries, the basics. As we're going to relate in a course on dream yoga and astral projection in the future, we also study in our dreams in relation to our symbols that we receive, four laws which relate to how we interpret inner experiences or the way that God speaks to us. He does so through contraries, philosophical analogies, correspondences, and numerology. I mentioned briefly the role of numbers and the eternal tarot and how we can use that sacred symbology to interpret the hours and dates and times within our dreams so that we can understand what is going on objectively. What is God trying to tell us? Now, when you examine a dream itself, usually what happens is that there is a situation that unfolds in relation to a specific drama with characters, and usually these represent us, or we can be involved in the drama itself, like a participant, but also we're witnessing like we're third person. 
Now, if you're examining a crying person in a dream, you have to analyze the context. What's happening to the person? What's the situation? What's the drama? Because sometimes, based on your intuition, your hunches, you might have to relate that symbol in relation to an analogy to something else. It can correspond to certain details in your physical life. It can contradict what you want or what you want to happen. It's very beautiful and dynamic. It's very subtle and intuitive. I invite you, in the meantime, you can go on to Gloria.org and study the course on Dream Yoga and Astral Projection. They give you some details about how to work with the four laws specifically for dream interpretation. We're going to give a course of our own eventually, and we're going to talk about that in a lot of depth specifically. But with that explanation, I hope that's a basis for understanding your particular symbol that you are perceiving or have perceived. We have a question. In the light verse slide, what does the calligraphy signify? In Arabic, it is al-nur, which means the light. Now, Arabic calligraphy is very beautiful and dense as a tradition, primarily because in Islam, they are not allowed to anthropomorphize divinity, because you can't. Now, divinity, or Allah, which is a four-letter name of God in Arabic, signifies the absolute, and also the light that emanates from that unmanifested potential, known as Ain, Ain Sof, and Ain Sof Or, the nothing, the limitless, and the limitless light in the Kabbalah. And that light, which we call Christ and Gnosis, is an energy that manifests from the void, from the uncreated from the limitless potential of cosmic abstraction. So the Muslims would depict divine truths in relation to Arabic calligraphy. So that light verse is An-Nur, which is very beautiful and very deep. So that's the basic explanation, especially why calligraphy exists in that tradition. We have a question. According to Sufi teachings, we can't eliminate the ego. In fact, we need to utilize it. We can work on the ego, but how can we eliminate? It's not possible. Ego can't die, correct? So this common confusion can arise when we're not familiar with the different gradations of soul within Sufi Kabbalah. The Sufis talk about nafs, which means breath. It also means soul. Or nafas can mean inspiration as well to inspire, to breathe in. There are levels to the soul, and we explain in the lecture on breath, especially how there is nafs al-amara, which is the lower animal soul, which we call ego. And then you have nafs al-lawama, which relates to the more conscious soul known as ruach in Hebrew, the Kabbalah, the thinking emotional soul, the conscience, which knows how to judge and evaluate the conditioned psyche, the lower soul, or ego in that sense. And then you have nafs al-mutma'ina, which means the soul at peace, neshama in Hebrew, the Kabbalah. This is the spiritual soul, the divine consciousness, which is never mixed with impurity. So the Sufis explain that the soul has to be transformed. The lower soul into the pure has to be tamed and dominated. Now we're a little bit more specific in Gnosis in that that whole conditioned self 
the lower animal passions have to die completely. And if you study the poetry of Rumi especially, it's very obvious that when he talks about the death of himself and the death of desire, the death of myself, he's talking about the lower animal functions of the psyche. So the ego has to die. That lower animal soul or the consciousness that is trapped within lower animal qualities is transmuted. It is a form of alchemy. The soul is extracted from the impurities and the impurities are eliminated. So that the lower soul becomes, the animal soul becomes a human soul. So it could be an issue of semantics. I mean, if you're more specific about a particular verse or, or teaching from the Sufis, I can clarify for you. Or write to us at help at chicagonosis.org if you have a particular passage in mind. I'd be happy to clarify for you. So we have a question. Can you speak a bit more on how to eliminate one's ego? Yes, there's a whole procedure and process we've come back to again and again. Uh, we've mentioned in this course, but if you really want to know how to eliminate the ego, you could study on Chicago Gnosis on the Gnostic Meditation course, the lecture called Retrospection Meditation. It's the end of that course. We give a whole analysis about the steps and stages for dying to the ego. That lecture is based on three books, Treaties of Revolutionary Psychology, The Great Rebellion, and Revolution of the Dialectic by Samal and Vior. The basic process involves three stages, discovery, judgment, execution. Meaning, self-observe your ego in the day, gather data about the facts. When you meditate, you introspect and judge your faults, like you're judging an uh, criminal in a court of law, a spy who you've seen in action and have gathered information about, you judge that defect in your meditation, and then you eliminate through prayer. Study that lecture on Gnostic meditation, retrospection meditation, that goes into much more depth than we have the time to elaborate right here, but it's very thorough. I hope you, uh, you study it. We have a question. Can you explain the difference between intentionality and ridding ourselves of self-will? And how to be both intentional and humble? Intentional without expectation. So it depends on what we intend. Who wants what, when, why, and how. You can only know the difference when you're examining yourself, observing with your consciousness in a given instance. Is your ego trying to act in a certain situation? Or is it your conscience? You have to judge in the moment. Observe the facts. And if it's not clear, especially, meditate on the event. Visualize it. Now, the difference between intentionality and ridding ourselves of self-will is that our ego, like pride, intends to fill itself sometimes by belittling others by harming others, by being angry even. It intends harm. It has its thoughts, its feelings, and its impulse to act. You have to see it in action. Observe it in the moment. That is the first step for ridding yourself of self-will. Because you have to separate from it. You have to look at it and observe it. If you're identified with it and you feel that you are those thoughts, feelings, and will to act in mistaken ways, then we're merely suffering and making other people suffer. 
The beginning is to be humble and to recognize in a state of observation how we are not innocent people. It is easy to blame others for their faults, but difficult for us to examine our own. You only reach that point of understanding when you are really serious about looking at yourself, not with physical eyes, but with psychological self-observation. Now, the soul knows how to act intentionally in any instance of life. That is only determined through conscience, through intuition, following your heart. Your heart will tell you how to behave and act, even if it contradicts your mind. And usually, our mind will fight us very hard. But you have to look at the results. Perhaps, for example, you're at work, you see someone who is a co-worker that's suffering a lot. You feel inspired to talk to them, but maybe you're shy or hesitant. If you listen to your ego, you don't say anything and therefore you miss an opportunity. But by following your heart, you can speak words of encouragement, even if it's difficult for you. And usually those situations that are challenging to fulfill, because the mind resists, those tend to be the right actions. But you have to gauge it in your heart. Examine your conscience. I suggest if you want to know more about that topic and that difference, study the lecture Spiritual Discipline in our Sufi Path of Self-Knowledge course on Chicago Gnosis. We go into a lot of detail about will and self-will. What does it mean to act with consciousness and desire? The difference between them. Hello. Um, I just had a question in reference to what you were talking about. Ego death. Um, it, is there a correlation to, in the Bible, they mentioned the fatted calf is the thing killed for the prodigal son. The son of man is offered as a spotless lamb. Is, this, is that in correlation to the animal soul that as one purifies or works on ego, that baser egos, stains, spots, are pure, are cleared from that ego, but it still has to die. So because, because subtler egos are seem more refined or pure but there still must be a sacrifice in the end sure so the calf that we're talking about is the golden calf so to speak which is our own egotism and idolatry now i'm not too familiar with the verse that you're referring to in the prodigal son story, the fatted calf is killed. He says, go and kill the fatted calf for my son has returned home. He was dead and now is alive again. It's just I, what you were describing with the animal soul and how, how that can, even that can seem to be, they're keeping a fatted calf. It's not a sickly calf. The spotless lamb is not a sickly disabled lamb. It's a, it's, it's a pure, healthy thing, but still must die in those cases. Yeah, in relation to the prodigal son especially, that represents any one of us who was once wayward and lost, spiritually speaking, and has been returned to divinity. And as a celebration for having returned to our inner origins, divinity rewards us by hosting a dinner, the banquet of the Lamb, the feast of initiation, so to speak. Because internally, a banquet or a Dinner party, usually with angels and masters, is a, occurs because we conquer ordeals internally, overcome certain obstacles. There could be some symbolism there in relation to sacrificing one's ego, killing the ego, 
so that you can really enjoy supper with the lamb, so to speak, with Christ. Because the reason I thought of it was because it seems like as one works with Gnosis, then they, you know, powers can be acquired, experiences can be had, which gives, as you say, inspiration. But it also seems how, how it doesn't necessarily mean that one's sense of self is dead. And Samuel says, don't be identified with magical powers. So these are ego, there's an ego in us that must, must die, but that ego is, we, is gaining knowledge along with the soul, right? So in, in the end, it has to, despite all its grandeur, which this process could seem to add grand, a sense of grandeur to oneself, unless discerned, must, has to die, even if it's grand, which is, you know, can be very horrifying, you know, to discover something great. And it must be the lowest, as Christ must be the least. Yeah, and that's why it's important that when we are working on ourselves and acquiring spiritual experiences, we can't become proud. Mystical pride is a terrible problem in spiritual movements where we have experiences about certain phenomenon that are very powerful, and then we and then our pride will take what is pure in that experience and attribute that to itself. But that has nothing to do with inspiration. That's the opposite. That's expiration, we can say. We kill our heart whenever we assume that those experiences belong to us. They, in truth, belong to divinity, our soul. And our soul is the one that receives, receives initiations, not the self. So it's important to make a distinction there because the mind will take ownership of experiences that don't belong to it. Therefore, we have to be humble like Christ and to accept the worst humiliations, you know, within our ordeals and paths, because those are the medicine that we receive so that we learn to keep our feet on the ground, you know, to really understand our perspective and this work. When the ego interferes, we create problems. So that's why we have to be patient with our experiences, but also to be humble and recognize that these things belong to God, not to us. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. So there was a question, what is the meaning of resurrection? You can study the Eternal Tarot course on our website where we talk about that arcanum and the Tarot specifically. But in one sense, resurrection is a card in the tarot that comes after inspiration what's interesting is that arcanum 19 inspiration relates to how we acquire understanding of symbols and the relationship of interdependent things how all phenomena interrelate with each other and that we are a part of a great cosmic whole and that we feel joy and inspiration and happiness when we understand that relationship resurrection is a card that relates to when the soul has really perfected itself. The ego is fully dead and the soul is reborn within the being. There are many levels of application of this. I invite you to study the 20th Arcanum on the Eternal Tarot of Alchemy and Kabbalah course. You can study that whole series even if you really want to understand the context for resurrection especially. But in synthesis, resurrection comes after inspiration. We could say resurrection is a form of rebirth in which you have a solidified and deepened understanding of higher truths. Kind of like the world of intuition. 
We have a question. Can you discuss the ego of lust? I've always only thought of it as sexual lust, but I've understood that it exists in many other subtle ways, such as a deep desire for sensations, emotional, intellectual, passion, mental stimulation, or even methods to escape from boredom. This understanding has allowed me to comprehend why I've suffered so many for so many years. Yes, because lust is a desire. You know, typically we think of sexual desire, but there is also lust in gluttony. We lust after certain foods and drinks, certain intoxicating substances. We also have lust in avarice. In greed, we lust after material things. We feel jealousy. We lust after a person's destruction. It's easy to categorize the ego in terms of seven types, like the seven deadly sins, but the reality is that the ego is much more complex than that. We use the law of seven, the seven primary defects, to have a basis for understanding the plethora of conflicting desires we carry within. Now, Pride can be lustful. Lust can be angry. Greed can be proud of having position in money and wealth and acquisition. You can only really understand the depths of any ego specifically by looking at it for what it is and not labeling it. Because there is a tendency and danger in us to want to label our inner psychology with the mind. And not really looking at it for what it is. Because the ego is a really complex mess. One label doesn't describe it. There's a beginning by studying the three traitors, especially the demon of the mind, Pilate, the demon of the heart, Caiaphas, the demon of desire, Judas, but as well as the seven deadly sins. This can give us some orientation and basis for going deeper into ourselves. But yes, uh, lust is in really all things. It's the original sin. And that really explains why all our defects are lustful in a sense. They crave after certain desires and impressions. We have a question. Is the Divine Mother really our highest selves? Or higher self? She is the heights of our being. And the Divine Mother is, we can say, permeates the entire tree of life. If you want to understand our place in the cosmos and our own psychology and spirituality, we study the Kabbalah. Now, the tree of life maps out our entire being, and there are many levels to the being. As the Quran states, light upon light, level upon level of being. The Divine Mother, we can say, is Bina, the Holy Spirit, and Kabbalah. But also, she is the Ain Sof, the womb and limitless abstract space from which all beings emerge. She's also related to Geburah, Divine Mother Death but also our instincts, yesod, and even our physical body, the earth. So, yes, she is the highest aspect of ourself, but she permeates the entire multidimensional nature of our being. So she can't be studied in isolation, but has to be understood in relation to five aspects, which are explained in the book The Three Mountains by Samal and Vior. You can also study the, the lecture The Divine Mother, in our lecture on beginning self-transformation, or course on beginning self-transformation. We have a question. I attempt to self-observe during the day, practice observation and imagination techniques at night. I feel for the most part like it's mechanical now. 
How can I change that? Examine your habits, how you're doing things, and look for patterns. The solution is sit and reflect. Empty your mind. Don't think. Don't label anything. Suspend your senses. It can be good to do pranayama, mantras, transmutation. Establish some degree of serenity. If you find that you're very mechanical, it could most likely mean that you're not concentrated enough or you're doing things unconsciously, which means we have to uh, clarify our observation of what we're actually doing because self-observation can be mechanical. We can observe ourselves and look at data and see our physical surroundings and our environment and know that we are feeling certain emotions and thoughts, but we have to learn how to separate from that. It can be good to change your routine so that you do something new to kind of shock you out of the habit of just repeating the same schedule but not seeing any results in your practice. Self-observation, when it's properly performed, is when you see something new for the first time. If you think that you're, if you're examining things mechanically, examine the examiner. Observe the observer. Who in you is looking Turn the question back on your own mind. When you observe something like a fresh rainfall in a cobblestone street like in Europe or some beautiful place, some ancient city, some immaculate surrounding, you feel great inspiration and joy that you can't describe in words. A type of sentiment that is very deep and profound. You don't know where it comes from. It isn't forced. It isn't manipulated. It isn't labeled. It's something natural and spontaneous to you. That inspiration is what you should feel like when you are self-observing. You're looking at the world like you've never seen it before. And in reality, you haven't. Everything is changing. Everything is in flux. All phenomena are interdependent. So learn to find joy in your perception. Examine what in you is trying to do things mechanically. Turn it on yourself. This is kind of a very Krishnamurtian effort. You know, he talks a lot about observing without a self or an I. That's what you need to do. Just keep looking. Keep working at it. It's not going to be perfect in the beginning because we develop Gnostic egos that want to do the work. So observe those Gnostic egos. Who is trying to observe in you? And then that way you can keep things fresh. Any other questions? We do have a, another question here. What are your thoughts on ayahuasca and how it relates to the Divine Mother? In these studies, we don't use drugs or plant substances like that, like ayahuasca, or other drugs like marijuana, cocaine, drugs, alcohol especially, primarily because those substances condition the consciousness. They awaken perceptions within the conditioned ego, the self. The kind of inspiration and spiritual experiences we're talking about in these studies don't require any type of outward influence. It only requires a certain inner discipline, and therefore it's very pure. We're very pure in our studies and application of these principles. There are a lot of indigenous cultures and traditions that have 
utilize plants like peyote and or ayahuasca and other substances, but mostly those traditions are degenerations. They've lost the essential value of working with the soul or elemental of a plant, not ingesting it like a drug. And the Divine Mother demands purity. There are two aspects of the Divine Mother, we can say, in synthesis. There's the Heavenly Virgin Mary, and then there is Santa Maria, which is the inverted influence of that divine force. It channels within our ego and becomes demonic. And this is what certain entities like black magicians or demons invoke and utilize in their practices, like using ayahuasca and these substances. Because they're awakening powers of the Divine Mother but channel through hell. They're seeing perceptions and experiences but they don't question what they see, unfortunately, and mistake hell for heaven because there are infraconscious perceptions relating to our ego, our conditioned self. We're trying to remove conditions from our psyche and therefore we don't rely on any substances and neither did any master of the White Lodge. We have an article on Chicago Gnosis, which you can study. It's called How Drugs Affect Our Spiritual Development. We go into that question and problem very deeply. So I invite you to study that if you're interested. So we have a question. Is the Divine Mother experience in between breath or in between breaths? Like I'm assuming this is pranayama or mantras, especially pranayama, you can say in sexual transmutation, even in alchemy. Now, the in-breath and holding the breath is important because you're learning to circulate the sexual energy to your brain. And as for experiencing the Divine Mother as a result of breath, you can experience intuitive sparks of understanding and comprehension anytime during the practice. You know, if you're inhaling the energy and really circulating it well and containing it, directing it, you will feel ecstasy in relation to your being Pretty much at any stage, you know, what matters is your concentration and your awareness of what you're doing. That's how you're going to gain mastery of the practices itself. Any other comments and questions? So I thank you all for coming. We have one more lecture in this series. It's been a long one. The next lecture will be on Gnosis, Subsistence, and Divine Love. I thank you all for coming. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.